Welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast, where we surface good leadership and smart management in media and beyond. Today, I'm talking to Rafat Ali, CEO and founder of Skift. My name is Anita Zilina, and I'm your host. Welcome to Better Leaders. Rafat, uh, thank you so much for being here uh, with me today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I could probably start with saying happy 10 and a half, I'd say, anniversary for Skift. Is that correct? Yeah, you have a good memory. Yeah, it's uh, July 2020s. Sorry, 2012 is when we launched And then we're talking here in, in spring, at least the start of the spring of 2023. So it's been 10 and a half years. 11 years is going to happen in a, in a few months. 10 and a half years of, uh, I think a wild ride of an entrepreneurial journey is probably yeah. a good way to put it. Did you always, uh, know that your journey would be entrepreneurial? Was that no. always on in the, in your plans? No. And I think. If you ask, I guess the majority of the majority of the entrepreneurs will probably say no to that answer. I grew up in an academic family, in an academic environment in India. My father was a professor. My elder sister is a doctor, and we grew up in a university inside a university on university accommodation. And so it was very much uh, that I would be a doctor engineer, which is what I ended up going to school for for the for the latter for for. Um, This is in India back in the, in the mid nineties, I was studying to be a computer engineer, which is what I did as my undergrad. And this is pre-web. The only exposure I had to the, the actual live internet. This is, this is pre, um, worldwide web graphical interface was our teacher took us to like a government facility and it was a text browser and said, this is the internet. <laughs> like I pointed, this is the internet. This, there it is. <laughs> Even though we read as part of computer engineering all the theory of architecture, network architecture, even I was just remembering recently that we even had a course in artificial intelligence. This is, I'm talking 1995. Wow. I have no idea what we, what we were taught. <laughs> I've been trying to rack my brain on what we were being taught. Obviously, fast forward, whatever, 30 years later now at this point where AI is always what everybody's talking about. So... So yes, I, I had no intention of being an entrepreneur, except that I got tired of, of the idea of coding behind a desk. And back in those days, developers weren't the rock stars that they became many years later. And so I didn't want to work in like an outsourcing company in India for, so that's a fate I didn't want. So I said, I wanted more, something more creative and thought about advertising, copywriting. This is visions of madman type glamour in India back in the days and um, couldn't really figure that out. And then went into PR thinking they're relatively similar, hated PR. I was, you know, this is like a year and a half, two years I spent in, in a PR agency in India. It was my first job out of co a computer engineer doing PR. So it was sort of a, a, wow. a weird construct. And then I got exposed to the other side because I was dealing with journalists. And I said, that's what I want to do. And because I couldn't become an advertising copywriter, even though I'd read a lot of stuff about advertising industry, I said, I want to write about the advertising industry. 
and so ended up at a trade magazine in India that uh, used to cover advertising and marketing that in the early days, I'm talking 97, 98, when the web 1.0 boom was was really uh, at its peak in India, had also come in India. And so I started writing about internet advertising just because my editor knew I was a computer engineer, one and two, it's just, um, I was, uh, interested in advertising. Obviously I was, I was writing for an ad, ad magazine. So those two things blended together. And, uh, I realized that the action is in the U.S. I applied for journalism school in U.S. for, f- I think, five colleges out of which four rejected me. And the one that, um, that, accepted me also gave me the night night foundation fellowship so i i was able to afford it wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise and so came here went to india from india to indiana <laughs> nothing like each other and certainly not i can in imagine the, the culture shock <laughs> yeah and so certainly not in the late 90s and and just and stayed so i finished that worked a couple of dot com as as a couple dot com media companies as journalists as as a journalist covering internet tech meets media digital media world and and so that and then figured out that uh, the blogging revolution if you will started in by the time i came to us in 99 blogs are very early so um so i thought oh this could be a platform where i could do my own initial personal writing and i started a personal blog on like documenting my journey as a student in america type journey um that then turned into hey i can start putting uh links about the business of media media stuff that i was interested in um and that that became ultimately became a career i became a journalist i was a trained yeah i went to journalism school in u.s but really took the mix of that those skills plus blogging to create what at that point in 2002 is when i launched my first blog to call it a company would be a stretch at that point paid content uh which was covering the business of content online and married blogging skills with with my reporting skills and so covering that sector with the intensity that the blog world allows daily co- multiple times a day fast pace chunks of information sort of an addictive format uh in those days yeah but it was already entrepreneurial. I mean, you just said it wasn't like a, you know, you wouldn't call it a business, but you definitely had that drive to yeah, early build and run your own thing, right? Correct. At that point, I started realizing that, uh, and the nobody else was giving me a job, so I, I, I should create my own. Yeah. And um, and that ended up obviously being the best decision. Nobody hired. The fact that nobody hired me ended up being the best decision in hindsight, obviously for me. And so it was more necessity than anything, to be honest, uh, that I got to do something. Um, and I moved from New York, from Bloomington, Indiana, where I went to school, moved to New York from, from New York, moved to London. And that's where I really jumped full time into paid content, started getting ads, didn't know anything. I mean, I was covering the business of internet advertising and media. So I had some theoretical sense of yeah. like what do you charge and what are the ways to um because i was covering businesses so how do you run a business how do, so all of those were theory um and then so i learned how to build a business while covering businesses as well so i yeah. guess I had some i had access to 
I guess, resources in the sense that if I needed to understand something about the business, I could call somebody. Yeah. I think there's always a lot of learning by doing in entrepreneurial leadership, right? I feel like that's that constant kind of learning and also accepting that there is no book that teaches you how to do that. Yeah. And it's also interesting where this is my second company now at Skift and people say, oh, you've done this before. So, you know, should not, not that they say it's easy, but they, what they mean is you've done this before, meaning you could do it again. And true, I'm doing it again. Uh, but it's the playbook is very different. I mean, what, what I, what I knew about management or people 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, is very different than what it is today. The world has changed. The way people behave has changed in, a, in, a, in an aggregate. Um, what the workplace norms are have changed. Um, certainly the, te- the technologies in which I built my business, some of them have remained, like for instance, Skift is built on WordPress. WordPress is a blogging tool, blogging, but turns out WordPress drives half of the internet. So it's not a blog, yeah. it's the blog tool that I used, tools that I used to paid content. I guess somewhat similar now, still 20, 20 years later, 25 years later. But um, in general, how you build companies, it's interesting. My first company was a totally virtual company for a long time before the word virtual or even before Skype was launched. I think Skype was launched 2005 and paid content as a blog was launched 2002. And I ended up sort of bringing on a couple of freelancers that turned to full-time employees over a period of time. And they were in different cities in the US, I was in LA at that point. And so we were communicating using messenger type, MSN messenger, AOL, uh, not using AOL, but MSN messenger type things. And then these technologies came in to communicate. And now obviously 20 years later, we're doing this, um, we, we've, we've spent the last three years of our life virtual, most of us. Our company, Skift, uh, went virtual with the pandemic. We had an office in New York, office in yeah. L- a small office in London, small presence in Singapore as well. So we closed all of that. But we were one of the first companies to very quickly say, this is permanent for us. And so we... So you'll not... never go back to an office? With That's the intent. I mean, obviously circumstances change. Um, somebody else comes in and says, buys us or something and says, you have to be in an office and that type of stuff. But yes, for all intents and purposes, we are now a virtual company and also in travel, which is where we are, such a global industry, like it's a seamlessly global industry, which has been, which I guess we'll talk about what that means from a management perspective. But um, it's not like I'm done with US expansion. Now let's go into this country, that country. It just all seamlessly blends, which is just a joy and delight. um, Yeah, it's very connected, right? It's It's a very natively global industry. Yeah. And um which is, and it, it, it presents complications, certainly, if you were you know, just focused on the U.S. as a more simplified business by definition. Uh, but then as a global company, there, there, there's so many pros in terms yeah. of, uh, yeah, we can talk about it. Let's talk a little bit about the, the managerial side and that deliberate decision to, to keep Skift permanently remote. Mm-hmm. What does it, what does it mean to manage an organization that is per se an online remote company to manage teams? How, what did you learn about that? That autonomy is not just a 
term to use. You have to live autonomy, uh, as in different teams and with each team with multiple members, sometimes dozens of people on the team. I mean, we're total as a company now, almost 80 people. So still small in the scheme of things, but much larger than when we were pre-pandemic. So pre-pandemic, we were 60, went down to 40 because we had to do the layoffs and uh, we went through the <clears throat> travel was one of the worst hit sectors. So we, we had to, so from 40 to 80, we've doubled since 2021 when we restarted the hiring process. So autonomy and and treating we all, we all say we have to treat our employees like adults, as in you've hired these people, all the stuff you hear about quite quitting or whatever name your term these days of like, yeah, I can't worry about it. I don't because there's nothing I can do. I've hired these people. We have hired these folks with an idea that they're adults do all of them work out 100% of the time? No, it's not just doesn't work at any company. And so, you know, you hire five people for workout, one doesn't. I'm just giving you just a broad, yeah. that, that may not be true. Hopefully, hopefully it's even less than that. But uh, sometimes they don't work out. You go in all the things about, oh, young people want company, whatever the abstract stories happen in media, you have to divorce yourself from it and focus on what works for you. That's what I've learned. The other thing is that obviously oh, we, we always talk about importance of communication with each other. This has been there in the world forever, not just in, the, in this virtual era, but it becomes obviously even more real. Uh, we do lose things in virtual. Like there's, we do events. For example, is, is events. Our conferences, our physical conferences, we did obviously did virtual conferences in the pandemic, but the first conference back in 2020, September 2021 was our physical, a truncated version, early days of, of, of vaccine life. Um, uh, we had, we planned the whole conference, very complex affair, um, virtually. And then when we came together, we, we could see that some of the things fell through the cracks on mm. organization, et cetera, because we just hadn't had the practice because events are a very intense affair of coordination. And so we realized that. So what we do now for our conferences is one, we've become better at understanding. So we don't, even in a virtual planning environment, we're able to do a much better job. Um, but also that the, the immediate execution team comes a few days before, not just like the day before and so they're able to go through a lot of the things last minute and you develop checklists and stuff like that. So that's been some of the, uh, some of the things that we've had to do. Um, we as a company are virtual. Yes. I don't like the word remote. Mm. It's just like, so you, you remote from who? Only because you would say these are remote employees if there was an anchor place. Yes but there's no anchor place in the company. We have, I'm in New York, the bunch of, there are still, um, I said dozen plus people in New York, but the rest of them are generally spread around US, dozen employees in UK, six or seven of them in India, a couple of them coming in Philippines, South Africa, et cetera. So we are quite global, other parts of Europe, quite global. We'll start hiring back in Southeast Asia. So um, asynchronous work, which is a term that, I guess 
many of us read through the pandemic. I, I, I read up quite a bit on it in early days. That's the ultimate nirvana, which is you finish work here on your time, then other people pick up and do their own things from there in different places. In a breaking news environment, in a media environment, in some departments that's possible, in some departments it's not possible. So you become okay with that. Like there's no one single way of working in a, in a remote company. Um, in a physical company, you do have a sort of a predominant culture. It just is what I've, what my yeah. learnings were in a remote company. Yes. You drive for sort of a single narrative through the company, but uh, there are different cultures in different teams and you're okay with it. So basically subcultures that, that start to flourish that sometimes might differ, which yeah. means as a leader, you have to be okay with that creative freedom of teams to fill a certain void with their own processes, right? Yes. Yes. And the, as again, as in, in the scheme of things, it was still a small company, but you know, the tools, Some simple things like the, the, the project management tools that the dev team uses are different than the project management tools our branded content team uses is different than editorial. We can't do this for everything. It just then becomes chaos expensive to have different tools for, yeah. for everybody. But for their specific needs, different types of tools exist and we should be okay with it without trying to worry too much about saving money at all times. Was it hard for you, like personally, as a CEO, as someone who built this, to let go of some of these details? Was that a learning journey for you or did that come naturally to you? So um, I would have assumed it would have been harder for me. It wasn't. And I still, I'm still sort of analyzing why that's the case um, many, three years later, but also my first company was a virtual company. So the muscle that the muscle memory that is sort of forgotten, uh, these many years after was a muscle memory that I had to relearn again, uh, uh, in the pandemic with obviously way more tools at our disposal. And so it, it wasn't honestly, and Do I miss the drama of the office at times? No. Uh, just the interpersonal dynamics. I have a philosophy, which we, I guess we can get into if you want. Like yeah, the, I'd love to hear that. The philosophy. In general, the predominant sentiment, particularly pre-pandemic, was um, bring your full self to work. And my philosophy is please don't, which is uh, boundaries are important. In a virtual environment, even more so because then your work and personal life are so blended into each other. And work is work for a reason. Even as a founder whose whole existence is like 100% dedication to the company, the, th the thing that I try and tell myself and I've told the team many times is you first, your friends and family second, and work third. This is true for me as a person whose 100% life is, as a work life is this. And so if I'm trying to live it, then th our team should know about it and, and sh I should repeat it and our team should live that. And so I think that has helped also clear decisions. So the hybrid, like I, I read a lot about hybrid back to work, all this other stuff. So, oh my God, I don't, I've avoided all of that drama. You make one decision, which is hundred percent virtual as a company. You don't have to worry about all the other complications that come from all of it. 
like as a small company with so much going on, um, that's one less decision I have to mm. worry about. One less thing I have to worry about. Yeah. So you eliminate complications. That's one of the things that yeah. I try yeah. and think through. Like, how do you eliminate complications and things that you don't have to make decisions on? Yeah. And I think it's it's super interesting, uh, Rafat, that you that you say that. And I think it's almost comparable to like the pain is in the transition and in the in-between, right? The yeah. pain is not in the clear and dedicated endpoint, whatever you choose. It's probably the same with media companies transitioning from print to digital or Correct. from broadcast to streaming. The painful part is the transition it's when the some are further ahead and some are slower and no one really knows where to go and what to keep from the old world and what to take into the new world. But the ends are not the problem, right? Yeah. That's, I think, just clarity of intent and communicating and repeating. I've been a big fan of, big fan of the philosophy of repeat, 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 and then repeat again to the teams that we've had and it becomes even more important in a virtual environment. A good example is that I, in, this is just an internal rallying cry for 2023 that I declared 2023 is the year of action, which sounds ridiculous and like externally meaning like such a cliched phrase, what does it even mean? But internally it does mean something and, and which is that this is the first full year of normalcy post COVID for the company. We are in growth mode and every, everything is possible, which means that we just have to, things that we've been sitting on for the last two, three years, we couldn't do because of pandemic. Mm. We have to go, go, go. And uh, I, I started saying it in the last quarter of 2022 and people are tired of it, but I'll keep repeating it. This is four months in some of the, obviously all the halo of the early years gone. Yeah. Now it's, uh, now it's really execution, but we have to, oh, did we, Every every week, every month, you have to see: Did we execute on things that we said we would? If if not, why not? And so that type of um, repetition is yeah. very important in a particularly in a virtual company, and particularly in, in a company where people are different in different countries with different cultures of how they work. And that's an added new layer for us, which is. You know, we have people in UK that have a different metabolism. Again, I'm just, this is a very generic, um, stereotyping in this case, have a different metabolism from people in the US versus people in Middle East versus people in India versus people in Southeast Asia. And so the language with which our team talks in US in, for instance, company wide calls, I'm very particular and I've having come from India, having grown up in US, UK and India, deep connections in the Middle East uh, with family. Um, the thing that I try and imbibe and sh hopefully show by example, uh, but also repeat is don't talk about American metaphors the whole time um, in company-wide calls or, or team calls. If you're going to talk about football, American football, yeah. Turns out half of the company that's outside the U.S. have no idea what you're talking about. Neither do they care. They may laugh along because it's sort of... Um, so, you know, when you talk about inclusion, diversity and inclusion, it, it, as a global company, it has, a, it, it has a, a very different meaning 
than a, just a US-based company. Yeah. And I think that's, that's such a thoughtful way to approach it. And, and, uh, I think it really means that the difference that you mentioned before between remote and, you know, being an online company, because if you say remote, you still have that anchor, you still have that dominant culture, you still have that, you know, kind of hub, uh, that sets the cultural standards. Yeah. And I would say we're still a U.S. dominant culture. I don't, I, I'm under yeah. no no illusion. That's that's what it is. Um, but my goal is to continue to chip away at it. Um, and uh, there there are good things about the U.S. dominant culture, the professionalism that comes with it. That is uh, is at a different level in different parts of the world. Um, I will argue Americans have the have have the highest metabolism in general uh, in terms of work. Um, the the direct way of yes and no, give me the answer, don't beat around the bush type mentality of Americans does work a lot. And I like it a lot as a person who didn't come from this culture. Um, so that's the thing I want to inculcate across the world um, in like clarity of thought and, and quick yes and no and move on type uh, culture that we have action over intent. This is a mantra I repeat over and over again as well at the company, action over intent. Uh, and so we've, we've said that from for years, but in an, in the year of action, it's even more important for yeah. us to be action over intent. So that's... Yeah. Do you personally, I, I love that you have that like company focus model uh, every year, uh, specifically this year. Do you do that for yourself as a leader as well? I, I just know you as such a... Re- reflected person and leader. So I could envision that you have some kind of personal goal setting process or personal like strategy for the year as a leader, as a manager, but also for yourself. For myself, it it is calibrated over the years. And so one of the questions that you sent before, as we were talking, um, before we're talking as is a briefing document and what is good leadership and what is bad leadership. So I was yeah. thinking about that and this will answer indirectly your question, which yeah. is what is good leadership in one phase of the company early stage is bad leadership in a different phase of a company. So it's not as clear cut as people make it out to be unless they're flagrant issues of like harassment, etc. Short of that, there's, Good leadership in one phase of the company that, that, that is not, not the conducive thing to do later. Example in our company. I was very hands on early in, in early days. If you're, if you're willing something out of ether, which media, com- digital media companies are really just that because they have no physical assets. Like they're just bits on a page and not even a physical page. Uh, you're just willing it out of ether, which requires an intensity and focus and very hands on back and forth that didn't work year five, six, seven, eight Mm. in the company. And so we went through some painful transitions. Personally, I went through that. I, at some point had an executive coach that I worked with on becoming more hands-off things you learn about, like if you're giving feedback to, to somebody in your team, they don't hear your words. They hear your face. Like that, all those things that are cliched but true, are things that I learned. Uh, for me, the concept of being a boss came 
as meaning like when I enter a room, people look me at as, as a boss versus just somebody who's just trying to build this thing was a realization. I guess that had, I had at some point in my previous company, but it was smaller effort versus more. It was a very just accidental company. This was a more obviously a, a, a company that I created with very much intent in mm. mind. At some point, I'm going to say year four or five or something where like if Rafat is the boss is walking in office and comes and stands behind somebody that could startle somebody was an alien thing to me. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean just startle? What do you mean you're scared? Like I'm just here, we're talking. But the boss nature um, came to me uh, later. And so, you know, I have to learn not to pace in the office all the time which is what my father used to do. Like this comes in our family. So it's not like we just, we're just pacey people and <laughs> uh, pacing around people. So I had to stop doing that because what is Rafa think? Like in, a, in an open office, if the boss is walking around all the yeah. time. It sends um, like signals of like, oh my God, is something wrong? Is he trying to control us? Is he stressed yeah, out? Whatever. None of that. None yeah. of that. Uh, just a, a quick example uh, in the old office and the, we don't have these issues anymore. We With the last office, I actually had a physical room for myself and um, and you could close the door, but it was a, in, it was a door, but it had a glass in the middle of it. Um, I wanted that room for glass so that people can look in my, I was thinking they're looking in saying, what am I doing? They were assuming I, I wanted it so that <laughs> I can look out on them, but the intent was completely opposite. And it's just like, this is how you, you assume yeah. you, you have these assumptions that are totally wrong. Uh, so you never assume, always communicate. I think that's kind of the things that one of the big lessons I've learned. Yeah. And I, it could have gone wrong, right? I mean, I'm just saying, a lot of entrepreneurs don't manage to make that shift, like that shift when the company, I mean, there is plenty of literature out there. Is it like 15 people or 50 people? You know, those typical kind of steps when a company mm-hmm. becomes larger than one kitchen table and then it becomes larger than one office. And then suddenly you need to kind of, you know, build those layers of management. Uh, yeah. And sometimes it's a total different pace as an entrepreneur. Like you move from that founder phase to that manager phase and many and many don't don't survive that right yeah and i've gone through the pains am, am i in the best is this the end note meaning like i'm still learning uh constantly learning uh, 2023 is a year we have leaned in a lot more than for instance 2022 um i just hired a chief of staff which is a, a new phase for me as per, mm-hmm. per personally and as a business as well um, the other big, and, and we, 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 this, this person who's my chief of staff, she was with, with us as a company for six years in the sales, different sales roles has done very well, very well, um, embedded in different parts. Like everybody knows her. So it made a lot of sense to move her. One of the big lessons that I've learned in the pandemic, which I, I mean, I guess we're, 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 we're old enough, meaning promote people from within, mm. trust your people to, even if you think they're not ready or not completely ready to put them in positions of, um, of responsibility managers, et cetera, versus the first instance being hiring from outside, which in early stage it is because there's just not enough people. Yeah. And so that transition also happened during the pandemic for us where always trust and nine times out of 10, it's worked out very well for us, particularly over the last three years where we've promoted people from within, um, 
for some for some for 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 some roles or teams it just doesn't make any sense so you then hire mm-hmm. from outside um but the first reaction in any open position or a new position that comes in is there anybody inside that we can talk to or if they want to we encourage people to raise their hands for these roles and that's worked out very well for us so trusting your own people who've put time in your company to step into leadership roles is the biggest joy honestly the biggest joy uh to as a founder as a as a ceo uh for these people to be to be there and then my other thing that i say quite a lot is like my biggest satisfaction in life is to see people do well beyond skift which is my current company this was true for the previous company as well they go on and start companies and and do well successfully they they spend their time at skift like another, another lesson you learn is it's all business at the end of the day so people leave for various reasons you know this was a transition i had in my first company had in my second company as well nothing is personal it's all people are making decisions based on what's best for them and that's how it should be so that's the thing you have to tell for instance first time managers if somebody leaves on their team they yeah. take it very personally it's not about you it's not about you or maybe their management style you can get I mean, there's also learning opportunity certainly and so um there's just so many variables that you don't know and at some point you have to let it go and be okay with it mm Are you always that like zen and resilient or do you have days or weeks where you're like oh my god why is this happening Well if you want to know very recent past our all of our money was in Silicon Valley Bank Okay that is a reason to not be zen anymore <laughs> Yeah so that was a Friday it was a few weeks ago it's not that long ago but um millions of dollars of our company money every cent of our company money was in the single bank that collapsed i'm sure your listeners yes. will, will know all the the story and um yeah, resilient i mean we we survived covid that was we thought that was very sudden over a period of few weeks when the world started collapsing this was a matter of hours and it totally collapsed and well it all got be- fine in 3 3 days friday saturday sunday over but it was the friday saturday sunday was the worst 3 days of my professional life certainly and um but you become resilient i think resilience is a is like oh if i could will this company to, into existence like the two of us three of us 11 years ago what's the worst that can happen we're down to three people okay we can do it again so i think that certainly was a thought that i had during the pandemic like okay what's the worst that can happen everything shuts down mm. and it's back to us three just writing on on this website we'll do it again fine um uh, the same with well with the with with svb we i didn't have time for that realization it was just like oh yeah. my god all my years 11 years of thing is gone in an instant and didn't know what a bank collapse meant didn't know that government would actually st- there was a good chance people who knew this stuff knew that there was a good chance the, com- the government would step in but your initial reaction is you have no idea of course so yeah so those are the types of things that and then by the time the larger company knew on monday because we didn't communicate uh with them because we just couldn't communicate anything except panic the other thing you learn in the pandemic as well it's yes you include the company in decisions that you're making these hard decisions but you can't communicate panic hmm. like in the pandemic we were uh, even though we didn't uh, our we were three weeks away from running out of money at some point in hmm. the pandemic 
I couldn't tell the company how much the bank balance was because this just would create panic. What you would communicate is, here's what we're doing about how we go from here. But you can't communicate exact things because it would just spread panic. That's such a hard balance to find, right? It's a hard balance. And do I get it right? There's no one answer. I mean, the honest answer is there's no one single answer. And this is this whole thing, this narrative and management thought about a single answer for anything. It's just the, yeah. it's the wrong philosophy. You had some tough decisions to make during the pandemic and you had to lay off quite a few people. Yeah, but one third of the company. Yeah, that was very tough. Company. Yeah, one third, very tough. We initially did furloughs and it wasn't based on any merits of it. Like it was just, I need to slash X number of costs. And so what's the biggest single cut I can make that will save the company? And you just pick people based on just random numbers of like, here's the money we have to save, not based on the merits of the people. That was hard. What um, is your your philosophy on how to do layoffs? Well, I've luckily I've not had to develop multiple philosophies over the years, so that's good. <laughs> Let's hear um, the one that you that you developed during the unfortunate uh, pandemic. I think um, at all times communicate and act fast. Like don't let people guess, don't let void, don't, don't let there be a void for people to fill with the worst thoughts. So communicate often, communicate early in terms of we're going through this in the pandemic. We did, I remember a Monday morning that we, we, we have our company wide meeting is when I first communicated. I'm guessing it was March sometime, mm. mid March. And then by the, and then we asked for volunteers for people who wanted to furlough. So that was the first phase, meaning we did cut all the freelancers and, and software and whatever else. And off, obviously the office shut down. After that, we came to, after every expense we could, we came to our people. And so people like, what do we do first? We, we first ask people of like, does anybody want to go on a furlough to four day, four day and three yeah. day type things? So many people raised their hands. It was incredible. And this is where I said, like, include people in hard decisions and they'll surprise you in like multiple ways. That was the biggest lesson I learned. It was, it's, it's a legacy that my then HR, we, we brought an HR consultant before the pandemic as, as helping us transition from like early stage to later stage, uh, to a, to a more mature company. And she really has Linda, she's really, she left that legacy of like, include people, even in bad decisions. Don't just come from an ivory tower and make the decision. Um, and that really has, has, has changed how I think about management completely is like trusting people and they'll surprise you in so many ways hmm. versus an entrepreneur that's very like single-minded driven. I'm the one who's driving this type mentality, early stage mentality. My first company was small. This is still small in the scheme of things. So that transition has happened. Um, particularly during the pandemic in those days, it was trusted people. So once we did the furlough process, or sorry, the volunteer volunteer furlough process, we still couldn't get enough savings. And then we had to do um, go through a process of, of like us executive team deciding who to put on furlough. And we put 20 of those on furlough, out of which two people had been with me for a long time. So that was a very tough decision. But I told both of them, I called both of them and said, I'm going to get you back no matter what. 
And one of those is my chief of staff today. <laughs> so she's back. The other one was with us for eight years and she left and joined some other company recently. But, um, but yeah, so I think the the trusting your own people. Yeah. And it kind of comes back to the treating people as grown-ups theme that we had before in the conversation, right? Because treating someone as a grown-up uh, also means trusting them with some information that's not only, you know, sugar-coated and fluffy and, and nice, but also... For instance, financial information. We're very, very transparent about how we share yeah. with our team. Many people have said to me, like, are you sure you're going to send this PDF of company financials to your team? And so what's the worst that can happen? Some other person gets hold on it. What are you going to do with it? Like, okay, yeah. we have these... Um, so sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't always work out, meaning maybe this person that's very junior doesn't know how to be autonomous, um, at all. We've had some of those instances, obviously. Um, so auton, sometimes we, we end up hiring less junior people in general, just because we, because in a remote environment, one, you want experience of being able to work autonomously that comes with certain experience. And so that's one of the interesting things that we found is like you want, for instance, we're hiring in India where the work culture is the young people jump from jobs to jobs very quickly. It's just mm. the nature of where the economy is and how liberalization has happened of opening of the economies. And there's just a lot of jobs and people don't have loyalties built into companies. It's just a general culture thing there. Um, and so for us, we don't hire f fresh people out of college in India yeah. because you just don't have a sense of how to work in a global company. So that's why, you know, that's an example of how we have to yeah. modify stuff. Middle East, totally different, just a very different sense of professionalism and a very face-to-face -face culture. And so how do you then hire people who are, who can understand a remote company. Um, so we're early in there. We're hiring our first person uh, in Middle East. So we'll, we'll have a bunch of lessons. It's still a journey. <laughs> still a journey. So, yeah. so we're nearly uh, at the end of our conversation. So I'd love to end on this note and ask you, thinking back about the early days of your career, when you got started, what is something that you'd love to tell young Rafat, about leadership, about management, about careers? What wisdom would you, would you share with yourself, with your younger self? Um, the, the thing that I've always done that in hindsight has, is what I've learned is when everybody takes a, a right turn, I take a left. Um, it's just has always been, this is my travel philosophy, by the way, as well. Like when you land at an airport, if everybody's taking a right turn out of the airport, you take a left turn. This is how I, I, I go opposite. You may end up at the same place because you're going to do a circular route and come back to the same place. My wife makes fun of me uh, on that <laughs> phrase. But um, it's that it's okay to take a left turn. Um, and did I do it with some deliberate thought early on? No. Um, but life turned out okay. Um, all the things you obsess about, um, like education, you get great grades and all this stuff. Now with, I have, I have two young boys, eight and soon to turn four. And, um, 
do I obsess about the grades? No, because you'll realize in your own life, I, I don't remember what grades I got in college, much less even earlier yeah. in, in my life. Did it matter? No. Did it matter what university I went to? I guess not really. Um, so this whole obsession about Ivy Leagues and stuff, my general philosophy is like, give your kids the, the right grounding and they'll figure stuff out if you have the luxury of giving your kids the right grounding mm. in life. And so I'm not assessed about great schools. I'm not assessed about great universities. They'll figure their way out. They should. Um, so that's, life as a way of figuring itself out. I think that's kind of the thing that I, I would have told myself 20, 25 <laughs> years ago, 30, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, or 40 was too young, but th at least 25 years ago. Yeah. That's yeah. Turning that. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful advice, uh, for life, for work and for navigating airports. Um, yeah, there's as a, well. uh, and there's a, there's an Indian saying, I guess, I don't know if it's exactly Indian, but that's what I've learned there is that in the end, everything is okay. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Wonderful. So, so that's just, I guess, I think it's the Indian way of living uh, that we grew <laughs> up with. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing this and everything else with us today, Rafat. Thank you, Anita. Thank you for having me. This was today's episode of Better Leaders. If you enjoyed it, please do follow us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Missing Link.